what obscure literary theorist are we going to begin discussing next? Because <laughs> that's how we end every episode. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Todd Mack here with Joseph Dorowski, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about Sally Sparrow in Blink, the 10th episode of the third series of Doctor Who. Sally Sparrow is played by Carrie Mulligan. The episode was written by Stephen Moffat and directed by Hetty McDonald. A uh, couple notes. One, when we say the 10th episode of the third series, we need to explain a little bit about Doctor <laughs> Who. Because <laughs> this was really something like the 700th episode of of the show (laughs) uh because doctor who ran from 1963 to 1989 and then it was off the air for um you know 16 years and it was revived in 2005 and this comes from the third series of that 2005 relaunch which does still serve as a continuation of that earlier series if you're unfamiliar with doctor who one of the key aspects of the show is the main character who's just called the doctor uh, he dies and his body regenerates into a new form. So different actors have played Doctor Who throughout uh, the long history of the series. And that that 2005 relaunch is the one that most American audiences kind of have followed more so than the earlier uh, 1960s, 70s, and 80s ones. This episode, Blink, was voted by Doctor Who fans as the second best episode of Doctor Who ever. And because of that long history of Doctor Who, there are over 800 episodes of Doctor Who that have been filmed. So (laughs) that is no small feat. There are some lost episodes because I think it was in the 70s, the BBC started filming over. um, Oh my gosh. Who does that? Well, it, it... who knew that anyone would ever want to watch these shows again? <laughs> What's kind of the mindset? <laughs> Let's just reuse this film. <laughs> I will say I have seen some old Who and... Uh... <laughs> they don't all hold up? <laughs> they don't all quite hold up as well as Blink. <laughs> Though the number one episode is from 1984. So it is both by uh, by fans and then just today the website io9 did a ranking of every single Doctor Who episode ever. <laughs> and uh, I think they did that because they knew we were recording this tonight. Or because the new series of Doctor Who begins airing today on BBC America. <laughs> <laughs> One of those two. <laughs> uh, and in their list, uh, the, the 1984 episode called The Caves of Androzani, or maybe pronounced differently than that, but we're going to go with Androzani, is number one, and Blink is number two. So okay. some of those older episodes apparently do hold up. And uh, one other interesting bit of trivia that I didn't know until I was researching this episode. This episode is famous for a, a group of villains called the Weeping Angels, who look like angel statues, and you never see them move in this episode. But they were played by actresses who had a what? lot of what had a lot of makeup done. No, had some masks painted, masks put on their faces. I thought they just produced like forty nine statues. That was my assumption. I know too. that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah, that they were all carved out of styrofoam. That and was exactly my guess. But no, apparently Ega Blonska and Ellen Thomas are the main two. There are some scenes with three or four angels. Well so there must played. A, there must have been a couple other uh, <laughs> actresses involved. But <laughs> yeah, I assumed the same thing you guys did. That this was just uh, they made some molds out of styrofoam, <laughs> shaved those puppies down. Out of out of all the trivia that has been presented on this podcast for all the different things <laughs> that, that you guys have discussed. That's the biggest bombshell you've ever dropped. The dresses I were, were coated with a fiberglass resin so they'd hold still and they had to like shimmy their way into the dresses and then they got painted with makeup and they were given there were two different masks they could wear, a a somber face or a fanged face. They would switch out for the different scenes. Oh my gosh. 
And that's, that's was easier than just carving a bunch of statues out of styrofoam and painting them. Do you want to go carve 40 statues out of styrofoam? <laughs> no, I, I well, guess... Well, I, mean, I uh, guess also, until you're I'm, actually, like, on the stage right there, do you know exactly what poses you need? And so it was probably easier to have someone who could move around. <laughs> they're very good at holding still. They did say they had to remove some wobble uh, in post. <laughs> Some digital editing. <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> it, <laughs> I'm trying to think what's more impressive that they had actresses or or if they had carved a number of statues. Because I always thought it was a bunch of statues, and I always thought that was really impressive that they well, knew also, what, what poses they need. But like, imagine the sale value. The I was going to say if, if they had made a bunch of statues and they didn't think this episode was going to be great, like everyone from the group, take a statue home with you. Yeah, really. <laughs> Keep that in your house after this episode. Yeah. One, creepy, creepy, creepy. <laughs> and two, they would have sold them all. All right. Well, this is often considered, I think, the gateway drug for Doctor Who. Yes. <laughs> Where this is the one that gets pushed on a lot of people who are, like, maybe considering watching Doctor Who. Everyone says, we'll just go watch Blink and then go start over from the beginning. Right, it's like, if you do not like Blink, there is no way... That you like Doctor Who right. overall. There's no obligation to like it. People can like what they like. But if you don't like this, you're not going to have a taste for the series. I I solicited Facebook for discussions of Blink because I knew it was one of the things the most people had seen. And one person named Eric that I know said, I watched Blink and it completely <laughs> turned me off from ever watching Doctor Who at all. Yeah. And like Todd said, if he didn't like that one, he's not going to like the series. I think there was one person also in that group who said... Um, you know, it's, it's like not my favorite, but I don't think that he said, I, I hate it. But I mean, this guy seems to be a big Doctor Who fan and doesn't think that Blink is the best, but also isn't turned off by it. There was a whole, a whole discussion, uh, in, in a feed I posted in the Salt Lake Comic Con Facebook line, uh, that went into whether or not it is a good gateway episode. Uh, I think the argument against that would be that the Doctor hardly appears. This is what the production staff calls a Doctor Light episode, where I think every with the relaunch on, every season has had a Doctor Light episode so they could double down a recording where the main cast was recording somewhere and they were using a side group that was recording another episode simultaneously to save on budget and time. <laughs> um, kind of like, I guess, in in American shows when they do a bottle episode, it's, you know, it's just to save, they find some reason for everyone to hang out in one room and have a conversation. It's just to save budget and doing a Dr. Light episode is one way for them to save some budget. So just to give you an idea of what this whole Dr. Who thing is that we're talking about, some of you may be very familiar with this. Some of you may, may be completely unfamiliar with it. Uh, Dr. Who, uh, is the story of a man, uh, called the doctor. He's actually an alien uh, of a race of people called the Time Lords, and they he has the ability to travel through time and space in a blue box uh, that is called the TARDIS that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. It looks like a police box. And he usually travels with a companion, and he travels around uh, space and time having adventures. Hey, Todd, real quick. Yes. If they don't know who Doctor Who is, they might not know what a police box is. Oh, a police box is, uh, it looks like a phone booth, but it's painted blue and it's a, like an emergency. If you, if you need help, then you can run to a police box and make a phone call in the olden days. And, uh, so many people when he's in like our, our time, they don't exactly know what the police box is for. Uh, but anyway, that's what it is. It's a blue, it's a blue, like phone book, <laughs> phone, uh, Booth. And I believe the explanation within the series is that his his time travel spaceship was supposed to camouflage itself wherever he landed, and it got stuck. 
<laughs> once <laughs> when it was in like 1950s Britain as a police box and it's never gotten unstuck. And everybody who goes in the box says it's bigger on the inside because it looks like a spaceship on the inside. Yeah. It's very cool. So Joseph, how did you come to know about Doctor Who? Back when I was in uh, grad school, uh, we Lost was on uh, doing its its regular run, not as uh, not you know a binge watch on a DVD. And me and a group of friends would have Lost nights where every night when it was on, one of us would make dinner and we'd all together and watch it. <laughs> and then we decided one show wasn't enough, so we were looking for something to tag on to the end. <laughs> and <laughs> and someone suggested that she really liked Doctor Who and none of the rest of us had watched a Doctor Who. And so we started with that 2005 relaunch. She had them on DVD and Mm -hmm. we watched it in order and we caught up to Blink, even though like once we started telling people we were watching Doctor Who now, everyone's like, Oh, wait till you get to Blink. You should just go watch Blink. And, but we we got to the Blink episode and it's natural place within (laughs) the series of Doctor Who. And that last night, even after the lost series ended, it became a Doctor Who and Battlestar Galactica night for a while. (laughs) We we just kept swapping in shows as we ran out of episodes to watch. Wow. What about you, Todd? Um, How'd you come to Doctor Who? Well, I have what I believe is a fabricated memory of the, the, the first time while I was watching Doctor Who being watching Blink, uh, at your place. I don't think that's actually true. I think the the uh, I was living in California, and a friend of mine had the Doctor Who uh, theme music as the ringtone of his phone, and he said, "Oh yeah, Doctor Who, it's great. It's uh, it, this would have been in two thousand probably seven or eight. And he said, "Oh yeah, it's a show. It was on forever in England. It's this great sci-fi thing." And I thought, "Oh, that sounds interesting." Um, and then. Somehow, uh, Todd, I don't think your memory is completely fabricated. I remember. Did, did, I, I remember I showing you. We watched it. We watched it together. But I think that I had seen some episodes okay. of it. But I think I showed you Blink. That. You did show me Blink. Okay. Absolutely. So this yeah. would have been. I was in Michigan at grad school. You were in California grad school. But for like Christmas time or whatever, we were both back in Utah. Yeah, I must have gotten together, and you said, uh, "Hey, have you seen Doctor Who?" And I may have said something like, "Oh, I've heard of Doctor Who, but I haven't seen anything." Or I said, uh, "Yeah, <laughs> I've started watching it," and you said, "We should watch Blink because it's the best episode." And I said, "Sure." I don't know which of those is the true story, but um, but uh, Blink was. I know that watching Blink was when I really sort of fell in love with it and said, "I am definitely watching <laughs> every episode of this. It is really, really good." And I think it's a perfect gateway, but... All right, well, do you want to give a short version of Blink for... Oh, and everyone, you should know, it's it's on Netflix. So you, if you know someone with Netflix, you can go watch uh, most of the new series that have been done since 2005. But definitely this, this one that has Blink is on there. I know because I watched it via Netflix. <laughs> as did I. Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, as we said, this is a Dr. Light. So the Doctor doesn't show up uh, nearly as much in this episode as in others. Uh, but it, the protagonist in this story, and the, and the person we'll be talking about, is uh, named Sally Sparrow. She's a young woman uh, living in England in, uh, I guess, contemporary uh, time, so 2000... I think this what? one was 2007? 2007. And uh, she, she goes to an old house to take pictures and finds a message on the wall, painted on the wall behind the wallpaper from somebody called the doctor warning her about some creepy things called the weeping angels. Uh, she gets kind of freaked out. Uh, she goes and finds her friend and they begin to explore. How is it possible that somebody could have written a message to her, uh, in an old 
dilapidated house that would have been painted on the wall behind the old creepy wallpaper and magic ensues. So that sounds interesting. You can go find that episode on Netflix or we'll have some links in our show notes about where you can buy the DVDs. Uh, and you can find our show notes and everything at protagonistpodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, we'd appreciate anyone who goes and leaves us a review on iTunes or whatever streaming device or site you use to find uh, our podcast. We appreciate any feedback that we get. Can I make a Patreon plug? Yes. We have modified our goals on Patreon And we want to, first of all, thank all of our Patreon supporters for helping us reach our first goal, which was to get Libsyn support uh, so that we can track our numbers better. Our new goal is that if we can hit $25 a month, which would be $8 more than we are currently bringing in per month, uh, then we can boost our posts on Facebook so that we can hopefully grow our audience. And that would be awesome. So if you listener are listening to this right now, please consider giving us a dollar a month for, uh, to help us put on the show and spread the word about the protagonist. And we hope to hear from you soon. So now here comes the full spoiler synopsis. Sally Sparrow enters an abandoned house to take pictures because she likes old, sad things. She sees some writing pe- uh, behind peeling wallpaper and pulls it back to see the words, Beware the Weeping Angels, O oh, and Duck. She keeps peeling the wallpaper and new words appear. No, really, Duck. Sally Sparrow, Duck now. So she ducks as a pot crashes into the wall. She turns but only sees a statue of an, of an angel standing outside the broken window. She peels off the last of the wallpaper and reads Love from the Doctor with the year 1969 written next to it. Sally visits her friend Kathy to talk about the spooky message where she runs into Kathy's brother Lawrence. Sally and Kathy return to the abandoned home to investigate further. The doorbell rings and Sally answers it while Kathy stays upstairs. A man hands Sally an envelope saying that his grandmother gave it to him to give to Sally Sparrow at this house at this date and time. The envelope has a letter and old-timey photos of Kathy saying that for Sally, it should only be a minute since they last spoke, but for Kathy, it's been a lifetime. Sally runs upstairs, but Kathy has disappeared. Sally sees a key dangling from the hand of an angel statue and grabs it. Viewers see Kathy appear in the 1920s and meet a man who, according to the letter she wrote Sally, becomes her husband. After reading the letter in full, Sally goes to tell Kathy's brother Lawrence that his sister has, well, gone away. Lawrence is watching a video of the doctor, which he says is a nonsensical Easter egg that is hidden hidden onto 17 random DVDs. The doctor appears to be having half of a conversation. Nobody knows what the other half of the conversation is supposed to be. Sally next goes to the police to report her friend's disappearance, where she meets Billy Shipton. He shows her a collection of dozens of vehicles that have turned up abandoned at the house where Kathy disappeared. There's also a blue police box among the cars. After some flirting, Sally leaves and Shipton turns around to see statues surrounding the police box. He walks over and one of the angels touches him from behind, sending him back in time to 1969, where he meets the doctor. The doctor explains that the weeping angels are an ancient species that feeds off an individual's life potential. They touch someone, send them back in time, and let them live to death. Meanwhile, the angels feed off the potential energy of the life that went unlived. Back in the present, Sally receives a phone call from Shipton, now an old and dying man. She visits him, and he tells her he started a publishing house and then got into video and DVD production. He tells her to look at the list of 17 DVDs with the hidden Easter eggs. She realizes that those are the only 17 DVDs that she owns. She calls Lawrence to meet her at the abandoned house with a computer to play the video of the doctor. 
Sally watches the video and has a full conversation with the doctor. When she asks how he can hear her, the doctor says, look to your left, where Sally sees that Lawrence is writing down everything they say. Uh, and doc- the doctor also explains that angels sent him to the past, separating him from his time machine. He warns that the angels want to enter this time machine called a TARDIS to absorb all of the time energy it contains, but says that if they succeed, it could cause the Earth's sun to go out. He also explains that if anyone looks at a weeping angel, the weeping angel becomes quantum locked and appears only as a stone statue. Weeping angels keep their hands over their eyes when around their own kind so that they don't accidentally look at one another and become permanently frozen. Lawrence and Sally see an angel statue in the room with them. While Lawrence stares at it, Sally tries to find a way out of the house. Lawrence blinks, and in that moment, the angel has moved across the room and almost touched him. Sally and Lawrence make their way down to the basement of the house where they find the doctor's time machine, which the angels have taken from the police station. Sally re- realizes that the key she found earlier must unlock the time machine, but while trying to open it, four angels are moving closer every time they look away or the light flickers in the room. They get inside the time machine, but the angels begin rocking it back and forth, trying to break their way in. A hologram of the doctor appears in the TARDIS, telling uh, Sally and Lawrence to insert a disc. Lawrence puts his DVD into a slot in the TARDIS and the time machine disappears, leaving Sally and Lawrence in a circle of angels that were attacking the TARDIS. But because the angels were on opposite sides of the box when it disappeared, they are now staring directly at each other and are frozen forever. One year later, Sally and Lawrence own a used book and DVD store, but Sally is still obsessed with what happened to her. She keeps a folder of everything that happened, making notes and trying to make sense of it all. She looks out the window and sees the doctor running by with a bow and arrow. She runs out and gives him the folder, but he doesn't recognize Sally. He says he lives his life out of order, so she may know him, even though he doesn't know her. She gives him the folder and tells him that he will need it when he gets trapped in 1969 lawrence walks up and with this chapter of her life now closed sally takes his hand ah well done thank you very concise there's it's a hard episode (laughs) to summarize (laughs) it it, it hinges on uh odd quirks of time travel yeah i think it's good that you wrote that one and not me because we would probably be here for about 45 minutes (laughs) trying to explain (laughs) Uh, all of that. That was well, well done. Thinking back to the the epic Quiet Man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Slot summary. laughs> well, there's so many. Here's the thing about this. There are so many. Uh, first of all, I love this because of the structure and this, the overall story. I think this holds together really well. But there are so many small moments of just brilliance, like when Sally and Billy are flirting with each other in the police station. It's just fantastic it's just yeah it's it's delightful and charming and he is so charming oh he's he's great and she's sort of embarrassed and it the acting is top-notch and the writing is super crisp and start to finish this this story is really really good can i tell you two things that i found out while researching stuff for this episode please uh because this was the doctor life besides the fact that the <laughs> that the weeping angels are actually played by actors yes uh because this was a doctor light episode and it was a little lower on the totem pole as far as budget and concerns were there was only one script meeting with the producers <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> they went over the script once before the, they started filming basically see these <sighs> it's just that that kind of thing amazes me yeah because this is so perfectly structured it's so good. I was telling my students today, this, in my opinion, this is one of the best episodes of any television show ever. It's so good. It just holds up so well. I could watch it over and over and over again and never tire. Uh, the second thing I found out, uh, the scene where she's flirting with the policeman in the, in the police station. Is totally improvised. No. Uh, but the actor had a different accent when they filmed that. And then when they filmed with the older actor, uh, when we see him as an old man playing the same Uh character, he couldn't do the same London accent. So he just did his voice and they went and redubbed the 
young actor's voice with a to match the accent. Really? <laughs> yes. So that is act, it the same actor? It's the same actor doing a different accent, dubbing his lines over his performance with a different accent. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Well done. Well researched. Thank you. Uh, Wikipedia slash the recesses of my mind is a wealth. Yes. <laughs> of, of information. <laughs> <laughs> somebody's somebody somewhere is listening to this and thinking those suckers they always fall for my <laughs> <laughs> I, I double checked the sources i went back and saw they're coming from some official doctor who magazines and that sort of thing <laughs> so, yeah. oh man okay so uh so let's talk about sally sparrow one thing i noticed this time that i never thought about because i was thinking it was a little bit it felt a little bit like when we started talking about katniss in the hunger games where she does a lot of reacting Yes. But then I realized because of that coda at the end where she's still obsessed with this weird thing that happened to her and she's taking all these notes and writing it all down and she's the one that gives that to the doctor. It's yes. her planning that saves her life. Yes. <laughs> she just planned to save her life after the fact. That's so good. That's such a great point. So it's, it's not purely reactionary. She's actually a really good planner. <laughs> Because even after it all happened, she like she realized the doctor like the video message that was on the DVD from the doctor. She realizes well that's the transcript that Lawrence is writing down right here next to me right now. Um, that's why I said look to the left and all that. But she still is like wondering how in the world does he get this? Like it doesn't make sense that we have, and Larry. We have the only Larry time. is telling her leave it alone. Yeah, like I just I want to have a relationship with you, and it seems like this is getting in the way. And she says no, I can't leave it alone. Somebody has to give the, all of this information to him. Yeah. And yeah, because even uh, like I know he was back in in the '60s, but how did he know to write that message on the wall? You know, yes. no one's told him to write that message on the wall yet. So she plotted her own salvation after she had saved herself already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not. Let's say it's not hard science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I love, and I did not realize that I. It's from this episode that the doctor's description of time travel that I still use. It's a little wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Yes, that's how he explains everything that gets weird in in this episode, and it also explains everything that gets weird in any Doctor Who episode that relies <laughs> heavily on the time travel conceit. Besides just like getting them there, so, so some Doctor Who episodes, it's just they use the TARDIS to travel to some other place in a different time period, and then they have an adventure strictly in that time period. And other than getting them there, time travel has nothing to do with anything. Yes, uh, but this one requires have you know re- relies so heavily on the conceit of time travel and what that is and people going to the past and leaving messages and all those other things. Yeah, and I don't know if it's uh, perfect. I mean, well, obviously <laughs> there are some issues with uh, time travel as an actual scientific <laughs> phenomenon. Uh, the best, the best uh, scientific proof that I have <laughs> that uh, time travel does not exist at least in, in the history of humanity as we know it, or as we uh, can assume that it is known in the future, is um, there's a Stephen Hawking documentary where he talks about time travel, and he says, okay, I'm going to invite any future time travel tra- travelers to my house for a party on this day, and if you are in the future and you know about this, Please come to my house on this day. I'm having a party for all time travelers from the future. And then the day comes and goes, and he says, time travel is not possible because if it was, some time traveler would have come to my house to the party. (laughs) (laughs) And it's Stephen Hawking, like the Stephen Hawking. So, sorry, folks, no time travel. 
there was Stephen Hawking proved it. Was there another flaw with the time travel aspect that you were trying to get to before we we landed on Stephen Hawking? No, I just I just think that uh, I don't even try to follow all of the things. It's just wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff, and it's fine. The story the story is it holds up well enough that it's not a distraction to me, and I just I love it. <laughs> Real quick, is this the moment where I can uh, pick one nit real quick? Oh, please, please. The very opening. I love the opening scene. I remember being entranced the first time we saw it where she's peeling back the wallpaper. Yes. And it has the message on the wall. And, you know, it has the duck. And, like, as a viewer, you're yelling at her, duck! <laughs> like, the wall tells you to duck. <laughs> you duck when the wall says duck. Yes. Uh, but then uh, this flower pot comes flying in. And that's the only time a weeping angel does anything like that. So, like, yes. why did a weeping angel throw a flower pot at that moment? Because the weeping angel knew that it would scare the heck <laughs> out of any viewer, out of every viewer. <laughs> so that's why, only, like, it on repeat viewings, that's what I've caught. That I'm like, that was a really odd thing for that weeping angel to do to pick up a flower plot, pot and fling it through the window. <laughs> I think we should say at this point, <laughs> although we probably should have said this uh, quite a while ago. This episode is actually quite, uh, many people consider this to be quite scary. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, we sort of jauntily say, oh, yes, uh, if this sounds interesting to you, go watch it. But um, don't watch it alone at night <laughs> if you find yourself prone to being spooked by things because it is <laughs> it can be quite scary. I, um, I showed this to a class with no uh, prior <laughs> sort of warnings. And I just showed, turn, turn off the lights, said, we're watching this. Uh, put it on, and I had some students quite upset with me <laughs> afterwards. Like, uh, we deserved a warning for doing this. <laughs> if you're going to scare us like that, it, it is really, really creepy. Uh, the music is fantastic. Well, and uh, well, I was going to say the statues, but the steel, the, the actresses who are doing the angels, even though you never see them move and you just get these still images of them holding out their hands, like reaching, like if someone turns around and there's a hand reaching for them, it's so spooky when that happens. Because it's just faces, a statue. Yeah. Right, the faces of the angels have these uh, like fangs, so the, it looks like a like a you know the weeping angel so, that you would see in a cemetery. Well, and they then call it, you blink. Go ahead. I was going to say that they, they're called weeping angels, and I guess we should describe. Most of the time, you see them. They're statues, winged statues of women standing with their hands directly over their face. Um, so <laughs> don't gesture it; you'll block the mic. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to block the mic. But but their <laughs> hands are you know held. How do you describe this? Parallel to each other, just. Oh, I blocked them. Up. <laughs> yeah, uh, directly in front of their face, covering, covering their eyes, covering their they eyes and their and their you know their nose and their mouth and everything as though they're crying. So you don't see their faces for most of the episode. But there are moments when all of a sudden there's a, a cut, and you see the face of a weeping angel reaching out to try to touch somebody, and they have this horrible, scary, fanged face, and it's very startling. <laughs> Well, and there's a moment where it pans, um, it, the camera pans in front of someone and the view of the angel passes behind them and its hands go from up to down to back up. Right. That's the only thing that moves is, I guess maybe that's one reason why they needed actresses is so they could do things like having the actor in the way and the actress just lowers her hands down and, uh, it's creepy to a viewer. <laughs> yeah. So I have a theory about why the angel threw the pot. Okay. Because you see the shadow of the pot on the wall. If an angel casts a shadow, does it get locked? Wait, what? Cause, cause, I'm so confused. So in the scene... I don't know yes. that shadows have anything to do with the locking. But you don't see any of the angels move via their shadows either. You don't observe their shadows move. 
but you do see. So, like, so say you're watching the ground she, and you see a, a shadow come across it. Would it be locked? You can't no. observe their motion in any aspect. Mm. You know, I don't know that the episode has enough information to uh, for us to really <laughs> nail down. Okay, I'm just saying because of the lighting in the in yeah. the room when she's looking at the wallpaper. But I mean, well, even like, what was the purpose of throwing the pot for that angel? Was it trying to knock her unconscious? No, the purpose of the throwing the pot was to scare the audience. No, I agree with that 100. <laughs> I'm just saying within the narrative, why that? Because it's so out of character for anything the angels do from here yes. on out. I absolutely agree. On, on a separate note, I... That nit has been picked. <laughs> Consider it picked. On a, on a separate note, I did receive several comments along the lines of, I wasn't really scared of anything until this episode. <laughs> <laughs> or it makes walking in graveyards a lot scarier. Also, yeah, I'm just looking don't at watch it. Do, it not, before bed. do not watch before bed. <laughs> uh, my mom has, uh, in, in her office at at her house, she had a lamp that had um, an, an angel on the base of it, or like kind of a stone angel, like a faux, you know. Reading books, I think. Yeah. But she said she could never look at it the same after that. <laughs> I think she got rid of the lamp. Well, I think one of the things this episode does at the end, sort of as a coda, that makes it really cement in people's minds is after the episode's done, the story's all over. They replay part of the doctor's conversation where he's saying, don't blink because they'll get you. And then they cut to images of stone statues i'm guessing all around london on buildings Mm -hmm. and they just they do a series of them a little montage of them and then you realize how many statues are all around you and that fear sets in yeah with the with the the monologue about don't blink don't whatever you do don't blink two things so speaking of being startled uh, i just found out my dog is in this room with me (laughs) with all the lights off (laughs) and she just stretched out and i almost had a heart attack because uh, I didn't know she was here. Uh, the line at the end of that is, don't blink, blink and you're dead, don't turn your back, don't look away, and don't blink. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and you see all these statues, and you realize, oh my gosh, every single one of those statues might be potentially uh, fatal to me. <laughs> and send me back in time to live to death. I love that phrase. That you know, They're the nicest murderers <laughs> in the universe. Yes. Because <laughs> they're, they're not stealing your life, they're stealing the potential of your life but they don't care what you do in the past. They just touch you, <laughs> send you back into the past and let you live yourself to death. Yeah. Um, uh, getting back to Sally. So, uh, so your initial reaction was she seems kind of, uh, maybe passive or reactive. Uh, and then at the end you said, well, maybe she's better than that. Is there, um, are there moments that stand out for you? Uh, besides the end when she's holding on to the packet, trying waiting for the doctor to come so she can give it to him, even though she doesn't know that's what she's doing. Well, she gets the hero music and the hero walk when she realizes that the 17 random DVDs that have the Easter egg are the only 17 DVDs that uh-huh. she owns. So she, she says, I'm going to go do something right now. She calls you know, uh, Lawrence Nightingale, <laughs> which I love that that's his name. <laughs> <They do. laughs> uh, and says, meet me at the place where everything weird has happened and bring the DVD player. I don't know why they don't just do this at her apartment other than the plotting necessity of having the angels around them <laughs> while they're watching this. But I, I would maybe say, look, let's do this in an open park. <laughs> uh, but the, so she, she does get to that moment. I, you know, whereas before almost everything is like, she gets a phone call. So she goes to meet the guy or, um, someone says, why don't <laughs> I did like this moment? She's at the DVD store and as she's walking out and all this weirdness is happening. Uh, someone who's watching a movie on the, on the, 
uh, wall. He's like, he's like, why don't they ever just go to the police? Always just go to the police. And that's when she goes to the police. So yes. in some ways she's like taking directions or just directing what's happening. But that's the moment where she says, it's time for me to figure this all out. Bring the mm-hmm. DVD. Let's go sort this out at the place where it needs to be sorted out. Even though in reality, she doesn't even really, it does. I mean, it's not a huge leap for her to figure out the, the list because the message from Billy that he's been waiting his whole entire life until the day that he dies to tell her is look at the list. Well, I, I, <laughs> that's it. I, his, uh, his main role, I think was getting the Easter egg onto those 17 DVDs. <laughs> Cause well, yes. he was the producer yeah. of the DVDs. Uh, we right. find out, but yeah, the, then <laughs> he says, did like, did you look at the list? <laughs> Um, so, oh, wait. I well, I just want, I, I'd like to go back sort of to the beginning here. So she goes to the house. She's taking pictures in this old, really old, creepy house. When when uh, he goes there with uh, Larry, Larry uh, towards the end, Larry says, "You live in Scooby Doo's house." <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's very scary. But she's there all by herself. She climbs over the over the you know the rickety old iron fence uh-huh. uh, into the house, and she takes the pictures. Um, and then she takes Kathy back there. Yeah, the next she goes day. back, which is another brave thing. After something that weird happens, I would not go back. <laughs> and she says, uh, you know, Kathy's kind of excited. She's you and me, we're girl investigators. Uh, and then she says, Why do you come to this place? It's so creepy and sad. Um, and Sally says this thing, and I have quoted this. <laughs> this may be one of my most quoted things. Oh, where she says, I like sad things. <laughs> she says, I love old things. They make me feel sad. And Kathy says, what's good about sad? And Sally says, it's happy for deep people. Which, you, you've quoted that on this podcast. I think that I have. In a previous I mean, episode. I, I love, I love, love, love this quote. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm <laughs> happy to say why. Uh, but I would like to hear what you think about it. I think if it came out of the mouth of someone else besides Sally Sparrow, who we love in this, it could sound very navel gazing. Yes. <laughs> and, and like, you know, just, just wallowing. But yeah, because we've already seen like her, her form of sadness isn't, you know, inactivity and, and just, you know, wallowing in the mire. It's going out and, going to interesting places and taking photos that kind of, uh, I guess, make her feel something, even if that's something is sadness. So it's, it's different coming from Sally Sparrow than it could be from, you know, the, a stereotypical kind of emo version of, yeah. of someone. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Is it's It sounds, <laughs> taken out of context, it can sound very kind of emo. <laughs> like, uh, let's paint our faces white and, uh, you know, just go sit in a dark place and feel sad all the time. And Sally just isn't that person. She seems happy and she has a great sense of humor. She's able to flirt with Billy, you know, really well. She seems really well adjusted. Um, she has a good relationship with Kathy. Uh, she... Um, but there's something that just this idea of finding happiness in in experiencing the spectrum of human emotion I think is really 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 important and it's one of the reasons why I love this episode is just that line because it always reminds me uh, that it it it's important to feel all of those things, uh, even sadness. And sometimes uh, fiction, I think, is a great way for us to feel sadness without, you know, 
inflicting real sadness <laughs> on ourselves. Uh, I just think it's, I think it's, it's the kind of thing that I would say to people, like, just put it in your crock pot and let it sit for a while, <laughs> that thought. Because <laughs> I, I think that there's a lot there. So, Todd. Yes. I think it's interesting that you laid out, like, the emotions she feels. And many of those are after she has just learned that her best friend has disappeared and possibly time-traveled and died. And and yeah. then she is adventurous and and she she doesn't wallow she's not sad at all well her um, friend seems... tells her explicitly don't be sad for me i had a really good life in the 1920s <laughs> and then and then she certainly she feels fear like when she's in the when she's in the house and she says kathy where are you and and kathy now is gone and the guy leaves and she's in the house she is terrified uh and she's sad that her friend is gone but you're right. When she reads the letter, then she's she's happy again. She's happy for her friend. She's had a good life. Uh, she lived well. She had a daughter, um, and she just like lived a full happy life and died. And Sally is sad about that her friend is gone, but she's happy that her friend had a really good life. Can we take a moment here and allow our producer Andrew to share a theory that he told us right before we started recording <laughs> that I love, though I don't think Todd was quite as yes. <laughs> So no, I, I I love the I love the thought of it. I just don't know if it's possible, but I, I want to talk it through. So so her best friend goes back in time, sends a letter saying that she met a guy right when she went back in time. Eventually married him and had a daughter. Her her third child is the daughter named Sally. So she named a daughter Sally. Do we know if if that's the mother of the guy that came to? He doesn't say. He just says my grandmother. Okay, was um, but then. The police officer who, who's been flirting up a storm with Sally Sparrow. Uh, the, the day, the same day she found her friend disappeared, she yeah. has this wonderful flirtation and and life is short and you are hot. <laughs> Another great line from this episode. Another great line. Well, from and this then episode. he gets the mirror later on when he's dying. He says, "Life is long and you're still hot." Yes. Um, and so he gets sent back in time to the '60s to like '69, 1969, and and he says he married a woman named Sally. And I've always, in my mind, headcanon, it's been <laughs> the daughter of her friend. Of her friend, Kathy. So, Kathy appears in 1920. She's married, and this is the third child. So, let's say the child is born... Ten years later? 1930. In 1969... You're right. It is. And the police captain, he's probably in his 30s. Yeah. So, so 39 and somewhere in the mid-30s. That, that's pretty feasible. So, Todd, when you say that, you're right, that is with such confidence. Is that you accepting headcanon, or is that you looking up something that confirms this theory? No, I think that I'm accepting headcanon. So let, let me think this through one more time. She's she's 20 years old in 1920. Uh, so let's say she has this baby at age 30, 10 years later. Uh, that would be in 1930. Um, 1969. Would make her See, 39 uh, getting married. And let's say he, he looks she like he's married mid thirties. So, um, let me check. Something but it, it wouldn't be ridiculous for her to have the child in like thirty five. Yeah, it would not be. I, I like it. I'm accepting it, even if it's not canon. And I had um, never ever thought about this, but I, I mean, to have the name Sally come up and be you know spoken to by both by both people who got sent to the past, I have to think that that was intentional. Well, and her friend's daughter was named after her, and then when he was flirting with her i'm thinking through uh she goes to the video store she comes back she meets billy they go to the hospital 
And he shows her the picture. I'm just thinking in the recesses of my mind here what this picture looks like. He shows her a picture of his wedding day, right? Yes, and it's him and this woman. And... Does that on, picture line up with anything that was in the original packet of old-timey photos? Possibly. Um, Does the woman see. look something like her friend? <laughs> oh, I got... Oh, oh, darn it. I lost the picture. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> This is riveting podcasting right here. Yeah. See, this woman does not look to be 39 years old to me. Does she look like she might be 35? (laughs) If we say that young Sally was born in 1935. I think, I think that it could be her. I'm going to just go ahead and take a screenshot of this. Why don't we, uh, (laughs) you like the head. Hold on. Hold on. All right. We're all in. I love (laughs) this theory. All right. We're all. I'm going to go do do a quick check and just see if anyone else has written up this theory. I would love to be the instigator and have this podcast be the way it goes viral. The egg forums, the egg forums (laughs) are going to blow up about this. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What's that from? That's Larry. I've got that one on a t-shirt. I've got that one on a (laughs) t-shirt. The angels have the police, uh, the phone box. Is that what it was? Oh, it's so good. I've seen that t-shirt. I have Let's a friend see. who has that t-shirt. Kathy Nightingale, granddaughter, Mary. Sally, Mary, <laughs> Detective Shipton. <laughs> Kathy Nightingale, TARDIS Data Corps. All right, here we go. There is someone on a website called Hey, Don't Judge Me <laughs> that has proposed. Uh, well, I can't do a quick. This is a long, long post, but. So this is someone doing the recap, and then maybe it's in the comments someone says that. Oh, now I can't even find it. Okay. All right, never mind. So this is not, a, uh, at least not a commentary from what I quick search of I the really, internet says. I love, I love this as a theory, and I am happy to, uh, what did the Mythbusters say, like plausible? Yes. <laughs> Let's stamp this one as plausible. Yes. And it's not proven. I don't know that there's a way to prove it without getting Stephen Moffat to guest on our podcast. But it's a fun headcanon. <laughs> It's a fantastic headcanon. All right. Well, I just want to say that I love... Um, I, well, there's just something like kind and warm about her that I really like. And I, I love when she goes to visit Billy in the hospital and, and he says... Um, oh, she says, oh, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you how it ends. And he says, no, actually you're not because I was told that I have until, basic, until today, until the rain stops. And she says, then I'll stay with you until the rain stops. And it's just this kind, sweet gesture on her part. Um, and there seemed to be, I mean, there's something, I mean, I don't know. We, we talk on this podcast so often about like heroes and these like grand gestures that people do. Um, I think sometimes we forget that some, sometimes the greatest characters are great characters just because they're kind and warm and the kind of people that we like watching on screen. And I, I like her. I just like seeing her on screen. I like the way that she interacts with all the people from Larry to the, to Kathy, to Billy, um, to the doctor at the end. It's, there's something really sweet about her. And I think it's worth noting that. So Sally Sparrow, great name. First of all, yes. uh, I love alliterative names and that is a great one, but so the actress is, is Carrie Mulligan, and I was double-checking, like, uh, 
when I was watching this episode, I was like, she's a little familiar. I looked her up. She was in the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice as Kitty. And oh. she's been in a couple other things more recently. Um, but like her headshot that's on IMDb, when she's all made up, it's like classic, stunning Hollywood gorgeousness. Whereas uh-huh. Sally Sparrow is not that. I mean, she's not unattractive, but she's not like done up in that way of what we classically call beautiful. She's right. made to look pretty normal. Um, and yet, you know, she flirts with a lot of the guys <laughs> that she encounters on this <laughs> and she gets flirted with because there's something about her that still remains, even as it's not, you know, the, the done up physical beauty that you often see in these kinds of shows. There's still something that's very attractive and appealing about her. Yeah. It's the, in the scene when, she, when she's with Billy and he says, life is short and you are hot. Um, I, th- <laughs> it sounds again, like taken out of context, it could be really kind of like sound really horrible. Uh, but I think that the attractive, when we say she's so, she's so attractive, uh, it's, it's in the purest sense of that word. Like people are attracted to her because they, they want to be close to her. It's not cause she's like super hot. It's because there's something in her that makes people want to be around her. And, that's pretty awesome. And I think that's why, I mean, more than, like, like when Lawrence, uh, the brother, like, helps her out and goes on this adventure with her, he doesn't yet know, like, she hasn't told him everything that happened to his sister. Like, he doesn't know mm-hmm. this is the mystery that they're trying to solve and crack uh, to find out what happened to his sister or anything like that. He thinks his sister's just gone on a trip at this point. Yeah, he still is kind of drawn to helping her out and... and He's really excited to have her help solve this mystery of the DVD Easter eggs. Right. I think he's sort of surprised that someone uh, like her would be hanging out in the DVD shop and interested in this geeky, nerdy thing that he does, trying to piece together the Easter egg conversation. Um, and they they definitely seem to be playing sort of in different leagues. <laughs> well, I, and, I, I, and he's he's surprised that she's there, uh, but she's kind to him. And um, I mean, even <laughs> like the first time that she meets him, he doesn't have any <laughs> pants on, and she's she's sort of laughing to herself about this is really funny. Uh, but she's not mean to him in any way. And the next time she sees him, he says, oh, you seem familiar. Like, I know you from somewhere. And she says, think about it. It'll come to you. And then he goes, oh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> You're the girl that that saw me without my pants on. And she says, yeah. But then she just kind of lets it go. And she doesn't uh, needle him about it or make fun of him or make him feel uncomfortable in any way. Uh, and then she's, she's actually really interested in this, uh, in, in this thing that he's interested in. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. And I talking about their differences when you said they're in different leagues. One of my favorite little jokes that happens in the episode is when she realizes the the seventeen DVDs that have the strange Easter egg are her own. <laughs> she calls him and says, "I know what how these are related. They're the seventeen DVDs I own." And he just in a shocked way is like, "You only own seventeen DVDs?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which would be like your or my reaction to somebody saying, "You know, those are the seventeen DVDs I own, or the seventeen books I own." <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you only own 17 DVDs? Well, particularly before streaming. Like, I understand someone who doesn't have DVDs now. <laughs> yeah. I guess In the 2005-2007 the version of Us. I would have been shocked. I was watching this on DVD then, not Netflix. 
Uh, Our producer, Andrew, has uh, discovered something that relates to an earlier topic of conversation. Yes, I've been, <laughs> I've been looking through theories to try and confirm my headcanon, uh, and I found one about the rock that is thrown by a weeping angel when she's peeling off the wallpaper. And they said, it is advantageous for the angels to incapacitate a, a victim prior to attacking them properly. This one just missed. So they are fallible in their throwing arms. <laughs> Though they, they never try that again in the episode. <laughs> yeah, and that's what, that gets to Joe's point, is that they only try this one time. It's like, do they have telepathy? <laughs> is it possible that one angel, the one angel was like, oh, I have an idea. I'll throw a rock <laughs> to incapacitate her. And then he tried it one time, and then he was like, you know what, guys? Don't even Let's bother. Just grab throwing the nine. rock things. Throwing the rock things, that is way harder <laughs> than you think it's going to be. Don't even try it. Just try to grab her. Yeah, and I'm not sure that it's advantageous because they're supposed to be so fast. Yes. <laughs> well, that's right. uh, another thing. Multiple viewing. If they're that, so fast that you, that you you can blink and they catch you across the it room, seems like yeah, across throwing the- a rock across the room would not be that advantageous. I was. I mean, it's kind of like when you reread all of Harry Potter. The first episode or the first books feel a little odd because it gets so much darker and grimmer, and dark magic becomes so much more real than what we kind of have in the first ones, where everything seems a little safer. <laughs> Like, yes. if you rewatch this episode maybe twice in a row, at the beginning you're like, why are the angels so slow <laughs> at the very beginning? Because <laughs> it's building suspense is why. But right. then at the end, they're flying across the rooms <laughs> in the yes. blink of an eye. And so it seems like multiple times Sally or anyone else in the house could have gotten taken out without any problem. Right. I've also found out that seeing their shadows uh, does not affect them, <laughs> as I previously theorized. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, and th- this goes back to this this thought that I had earlier about like this is not hard science. You shouldn't think about it too hard, or the illusion will <laughs> come down. But I still uh, love it, even as we are. That's so else good. Yeah, yeah. The the writing up, I have to just every time I watch it, I'm in awe of the videotaped conversation that the doctor yes. has. And the way that it works more than once for someone to say things that seem completely natural for them to be saying, and the doctor's That's response so works. It's so good. <laughs> I think yeah. Stephen Moffat said that that was the like the, getting that to work was the key to the whole episode for him was was cracking that that dialogue. Yeah, I think uh, it's definitely the high point, and the reason why I think probably the reason why I, it's so high on my list of of uh, TV shows. Because because of that scene and the way that so many different pieces of the story have to come together for that to happen. And they start laying the foundation for it really early. And the payoff is just huge. It's, I mean, yeah, the, <laughs> it the build-up so well. starts in the second scene where for fans of Doctor Who, you're watching it. And she walks into Kathy's house and her brother has that the Doctor frozen on a TV screen, which... It's just kind of odd for her. And if this is your first Doctor Who episode, you don't know who that is. But for, for fans, you're like, why is the Doctor on the TV screen? Yeah. <laughs> right there. And it's from the very second scene of the episode. Yeah, it's really, it's it's super, super well done. Um, so have we tapped out on what we can say about Sally? I'm sure not. We've, we've found an astounding ability to keep talking about things. <laughs> After I thought we were long done, <laughs> but yeah, really, <laughs> uh, but nothing else is leaving to mind. But, um, before recording this episode, I did put a few Facebook posts out asking if anyone had something they wanted to 
comment on. So we, I thought maybe we could run through a few of those. Go for it. Um, so several people said that this is the first episode of Doctor Who that they watched, including Kirsa, our, our one of our guests that we've had a couple times. <laughs> and uh, let's see, I believe. I had a friend tell me on Facebook today that I turned him on to Doctor Who by encouraging him to watch Blink, he and his wife. So I guess that's, you know, like third generation. Uh, <laughs> if I turned you on, if that memory is correct. <laughs> yes. Then that would be your grandchildren, your Doctor Who grandchildren. <laughs> who maybe will marry <laughs> someone else who gets <laughs> it. Uh, Ooh, okay. Listener Tessa also said that that was her uh, a great start episode and the first one that she saw. And she loves the character Sally and how she just rolls with the crazy stuff that goes on around her. Uh, which I agree. Like it's uh, in some ways you're kind of like, what choice does she have? But she could just stop <laughs> and say, no, I'm not dealing with this anymore. <laughs> this is really strange. I'm never going back to that house. Um, and, uh, listener John says that the weeping angels, he knows they've reached true villain status because his children have started to pretend that the Avengers are fighting the weeping angels. And that means wow. that these are like classic bad guys now. <laughs> Um, this is, uh, our listener, Megan offer, offers a couple of really interesting points that I, I wanted to touch on uh, about Sally. She says she's an interesting character and in that she readily accepts these mind boggling events and carries on how many people could react so calmly, decisively, and confidently in the face of such extremely bar- bizarre events. I call blink the Alice in Wonderland episode. She's down the rabbit hole from the very beginning and just moves through in a heroic fashion. Um, but she says that she likes how they use the angels to prey upon our natural fears of just out of sight non-human but humanoid type figures dolls statues puppets mannequins etc and adding the shots around london at the end of the episode which is what our producer andrew already uh, mentioned where you just see statue after statue just adds to the suspense and i think that yes this is kind of like the fear of the the ventriloquist dummy or you know the 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 (laughs) dolls and and (laughs) did i ever (laughs) random story house hunting when we were first moving here uh (laughs) We were looking at a house that this lovely old couple were were moving out of, and we opened one room as we were walking through the house, and it was wall, floor to ceiling, all the walls facing us, dolls, <laughs> staring right at us. And we just immediately closed the door and said, nope, don't need to look at that room anymore. Let's see what's in the other bedrooms. I imagine you and your wife, when you said house hunting, I imagine like you with the, with the Sherlock Holmes hat. <laughs> And, uh, and like maybe a magnifying glass and she's got some sort of ghost detector or something <laughs> and you're walking through houses. Uh, but that was just yeah. one, of the, one of the houses we looked at had one of those creepy rooms that you never expect to really be in. <laughs> I've was... been in one, I've been in a room like that and it was terrifying and it was full of dolls and the woman had written, uh, some kind of creepy cryptic note in lipstick on the mirror. Oh, not okay. Not okay <laughs> like, to do that. It's time for us to be leaving now. <laughs> that is that is just inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I am interested in this thought of uh, Sally just kind of rolling with the punches. Um, because, well, it's interesting. Some Some characters we criticize because we say, oh, they're reactive. And other characters we praise because we say, look at how calm they are, and they roll with the punches. So what's up with that? Is that the same? I mean, does that make, does that question make sense? Yeah, and 
I mean, it's, I'm trying to think. Really, the only one where we kind of said it's not. She's not quite as cool as we thought was Katniss, <laughs> right? Um, and I think in that instance, it wasn't just that she seemed more reactive. It was almost that she was willfully not engaging with the larger issue that everyone around her was. Yes. And I think that more than just saying, you know, she's reactive and, and just doing what she needs to do to survive. The problem was that there is this larger issue and PETA and Hamish and, you know, everyone else, Gail is talking about this and she doesn't want to engage with that. And I think maybe that's why she kind of became a little bit lesser in our eyes. Yeah. It's an interesting uh, phrase, roll with the punches, because it implies that you're in a fight, right? I mean, the boxer is the one who rolls with the punches, uh, knowing that he will be hit, and, and rolling with the punches is a defensive mechanism which allows him to take a hit without getting knocked out, but to continue in the fight. And I wonder if there's something of that in Sally in the way that she reacts or responds to the situation around her, where she seems, I mean, she gets really, really scared at times. Um, but she always, she, she never gets, you know, knocked down. She just kind of rolls with it and keeps moving forward on this little adventure. Um, but I like, I, I like that. I just, I, I just, I mean, I'm just thinking about it right now, but I like thinking about a character, one of the great traits of great characters and great stories is their ability to roll with the punches, uh, which is not the same as, you know, just, uh, reacting to everything that's happening to them and, uh, never using their agency. Right. Cause I don't see Sally as a character that lacks agency. No. And uh, again, I, I, we made the point that in the end, everything that works out actually works out cause she planned it. Right. <laughs> She's a really good note taker. I would not have survived in that way in a time well, travel story because I would not have a folder of details to give to the doctor. Yeah, but it's 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 uh, Larry because he does uh, shorthand. Right, he's the one that takes the transcription, but she's the one that uh, you know it, that folder that she gives the doctor has all of her photographs and all these notes yeah. that she's organized. She is very she is very uh, organized. Um, one other thing about this episode that. I thought it was spurred, this thought was spurred by a comment uh, on Facebook, but I'm not seeing it. So if someone did make a comment along these lines, I'm sorry for not giving you credit right now. Uh, But I love the idea that the way to stop your fear is by facing it. Yes. Like, don't blink. Face the thing that is trying to kill you. Stare it down, and that's how you stop it. Yeah. (laughs) The the only problem is that with that (laughs) is that no one is capable of... Holding the... Holding I mean, the you, you can try and do the one eye, other eye, but eventually you're going to fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, why doesn't Larry try that? Suspense, Todd. Building up suspense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the more that I think about this episode, the more I realize how often I am just completely sucked in <laughs> to things. And I buy into everything that's going on without thinking really too critically about it. I feel like between this and Toy Story, I'm going to become the nitpicker. <laughs> you know about Buzz. Let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I love the Weeping Angels as a villain. I love that. I mean, I don't... I don't think at this point it didn't it didn't, doesn't seem to me that at this point in the series uh there's a big master plan to make the weeping angels be turn into the villains that they become in the future 
Uh, maybe there is, but... Um, well, Stephen Moffat, who wrote this episode, he eventually became the showrunner. Right. And so I know they appear in is it two or three more episodes, which I think I have seen them, but they don't stand out to me the way Blink does. <laughs> no, they don't. Uh, there's something about this episode uh, and the way that it's conceived and executed that um, just makes them stand, stand out. But I think that the reason why... Like, I wonder if you're, um, if, you know, listener John's kids would be playing Avengers versus Weeping Angels if they hadn't sort of become, uh, rolled into the, you know, longer run of the show as they have been. Right. I've lost, so I'll be honest, I've lost the thread. And my wife and I have talked about we need to go back and just kind of reboot and watch the whole thing again because. In the moves, we, like, lost our access to BBC America for a while. <laughs> so we were behind the series, and then it wasn't up on Netflix, and then we just kind of got out of the habit of watching it. So it's been a little while since I've, I, I have missed the last few series of, of Doctor Who. So I don't know how they've been used since this one, other than I know I saw one more episode that had way more Weeping Angels going on. Yeah, they come during – it's during the Matt Smith run, and it's during one of my favorite kind of just runs of uh, series – but the episode, just as a standalone episode, doesn't have the weight that this one does. I think I think the Weeping Angels really do get their strength just from Blink and kind of stand on that alone. Because I have not watched the whole series, but they are okay. iconic to me. In, in part because it's such a good episode and it's one of the few I've seen more than once. But also the cultural significance of the episode Blink and the Weeping Angels is well beyond people that watch Doctor Who. I, it is it is, you know, one of those memes that has just yeah. permeated the culture in so many different ways. Like people who never watch Doctor Who and never seen it know about Blink and the Weeping Angels. Yeah, they it, get those the, references. The internet has given quite the life, I think, to the phrase don't blink uh and everything in there. And I reading again in some of my research, uh, Moffat definitely put a few things in specifically, like when he had, uh, when Larry said, uh, the angels have the phone box and he says, I love that. I have a t-shirt that says that they expected that t-shirt to be made, right. you know, within a week of the episode airing. And it was, <laughs> and multiple versions of that t-shirt now exist. Um, and he, even, uh, when they walk into the, with, uh, Shipton and they're looking at the police box and he's got Sally and they're talking about, this is a, it's an old police box. It doesn't work. And we just found it there. Uh-huh. Um, he said something about the windows are the wrong size, and and Moffat said he, he yeah. What's up with that? <laughs> apparently, they they remodeled the TARDIS slightly from one season to the next, and the internet got very upset about no longer looking accurate. And one of the things they were pointing out all the time on certain message boards was that the windows <laughs> were the wrong size. <laughs> so he, he mentioned it in the episode. <laughs> I always have wondered about that. Like I, I I've thought, oh, there must be some. A previous episode, <laughs> like in the old Doctor Who, where something happens with the windows. No, it was just a little Easter egg for a certain subset of obsessive fans. But it, but but those obsessive fans, I mean, that in some ways, that's what this episode is about, right? I mean, Larry and the Easter eggs, yeah. and um, I mean, it, it seems to poke really good-hearted fun at the online forums it, yeah. and he says, Oh, the guys, I have to tell the guys. And she says, the guys are really the internet. And he goes, how did you know that? <laughs> but it doesn't feel malicious at all. Whereas sometimes when no. uh, episodes kind of take on you know, social media or fan culture or some things, it feels like they're biting the hand that feeds them. Yes. This one does not feel that way at all. No, I think you could be a, a an internet nerd and love the, you know, 
<laughs> I feel like that was a shout out, as, shout out to as you. As <laughs> maybe, maybe some of us have done, uh, researching theories about why things may or may not be the way they are um, and not feel like you're being patronized or criticized or uh, paradized. <laughs> <laughs> Made into parody? Is that what you were going for? There? Yes. Yeah, that's what I was going for. <laughs> All right. A couple other comments that I had on uh, my Facebook wall. Listener Cammy just says, the Angel episodes freak me out. We've touched on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and though she said that one touch of the episode that she really does enjoy is that the friend who gets sent back to 1920 has a good life. <laughs> and I still, like, I love that idea that these angels are horrifying, you know, death-dealing creatures, but they let you live to death. <laughs> it's, it's such a fascinating concept to me. Yeah. Like what is the fear? I mean, they, they seem so terrifying, but what, like, what's the real danger? Like, why is it so, why is it so terrifying? Being ripped from your family and social circle and way of life. But that's not what people are afraid of, and you know it. They're afraid of statues coming to life and touching them. That's true. It, it is. It's just the fact that a statue can touch you. Yeah, the fear is definitely this inanimate object coming to life and attacking you, even if the attack is more metaphysical <laughs> than, like, tearing you to shreds. Right. Um, I, th- I mean, when you start to think about it, I think you understand why it would be scary to be, you know, sent somewhere where all of your connections are gone and... You know, you might have to use an outhouse instead of <laughs> indoor plumbing. <laughs> Things like that could be frustrating. But it's really the, the I, I think, the, I guess the raw fear of it all is the idea that something around you that's not supposed to move is really alive and wants to get you. Here's my theory. And this is not nearly as interesting as any of the theories that have been proposed tonight. But I wonder if there's a way of looking at this episode where it becomes like a carpe diem thing because like how many of us have wasted time? I just think Kathy's so interesting because she, she lives such a happy life and she says, don't worry about me. Like I'm fine. I've lived a good, full, happy life. And then at the end you see Larry wanting to have that kind of a happy, full, rich life with a great relationship uh, with Sally. And she seems stuck in a DVD store and life is passing her by. And then she finally is able to, you know, hand the packet to the doctor and then she takes his hand in some maybe symbolic way saying, um, like I'm ready to live my life, whether it's this life or whether it's the, you know, being sent in, in the end, there's something, uh, really celebratory, about life and living a full life and, um, you know, building great relationships or wherever you are. Uh, and I think it's one of the other things that I really love about this episode. And there may be a way to, to, to see it as a criticism of, you know, media or, or at least a warning about getting absorbed into things that take us away from, just living life. But, but to me, it just stands out as a real celebration of life and living. And it's interesting to me that we're all so terrified of being sent into the past when in reality, um, we can be happy in pretty much any circumstance as long as we're living life, you know, fully. 
I like it. How's that? Yeah. That works for me. Here's a presenter with uh, a couple final notes before we wrap this episode up. I just basically want to do a blanket appreciation to all the people who commented. I posted it through Salt Lake Comic Con, which is coming up, and, and we all live in Utah, so it's our local thing. And it was a great response, and I and I want to thank all the people who commented through that, and, and their comments were helpful. And I know, Todd, you were looking at some of those through the episode, right? Yes. Did you find them helpful? Absolutely. Thank you all. And we want you to keep listening. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> uh, and, and some of my, on my personal feed, I've got some thanks to Phoebe, Autumn, Robert, who is, I think, the best Doctor Who cosplayer I've ever seen for David Tennant. <laughs> Wait, is that one person with that name? No. <laughs> no. These are, these are three different people. <laughs> okay. Are they all good cosplayers? No, but Robert, Robert. is... Phoebe and, and Autumn are female. Uh, yes. But yeah, no, Robert... <laughs> it just seemed like a really interesting name. Phoebe Autumn <laughs> Robert, the greatest cosplayer in <laughs> Comic-Con history. <laughs> no, Robert does a dynamite David Tennant, Doctor Who. Really? Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, and also, Kristen and Eric, some of my friends who commented, thank you to all of them. And, and all of you people from the Comic-Con page, even if I... Don't mention you by name. We really appreciate it, and I will share the episode to you. So you get the chance to hear your comments possibly discussed. All right, so (laughs) thank you to all of our listeners and anyone who provides us feedback. And we'll probably try and do this some more for future episodes, solicit feedback before we uh, record an episode. Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and leave us a review. It helps both our viewership and our feelings of self-worth. Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all our shows, and you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter uh, at, at protagonistpod. I'm at Todd K. Mack. He's at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. If you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or support us with a financial donation so that we can continue to spread the good word about our podcast, you can click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. I'm so conflicted about whether that... <laughs> that should not make a cut. That should not even be an end... An end tag. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. All right.